Money FM 89.3. Best of drive time. It is now time for our Eurowatch segment, taking a look at headlines from around the European region. We'll talk about UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's ruling Conservatives suffering big losses at an electoral test, as well as what we potentially know about Russia's claims that Ukraine has launched a series of drone attacks on its territory in recent weeks. On the line to give us some analysis is Dr. Sami Apuri, visiting lecturer in war studies at King's College London. He's also the author of the book Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. Dr. Samir, good afternoon. How are you, sir? Good afternoon. I'm wonderful. Nice to speak to you. As always, it is great speaking with you. I don't suppose you caught the coronation of King Charles III over the weekend. Any fashionable celebrities perhaps caught your eye? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, I did catch it. It was a hospitable time in Singapore, so it wasn't too bad to stay up. No, it's historic. And, you know, I was just thinking to myself, there are so few people, even in that audience, that remember the last one in 1962. Yeah, yeah. So it's such a big moment. Yeah. I mean, I caught it myself. And what's funny is I, I caught it on an Australian channel. So the irony in that. But I suppose <laughs> uh, let's start off with the UK. Because in that same week, we saw Britain's ruling Conservatives plunged into a bit of a crisis. They suffered big losses in Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's first major electoral test since he took office last year. The Prime Minister's party lost more than a thousand seats in local council polls even before all the counting had ended. I want to ask what went wrong here, but I suspect this does happen. And this is where Labour kind of gets to stand out, especially when you call into question the cost of living. Yes, completely. It's A lot of it is just, I think, evidence of the length of time the Conservative Party have been in power. That's now, you know, it's 13 or so years. It's a very, very long time. And of course, after that point, you are the focal point for all of people's criticisms, all of their woes. Many of them justified, some of them just because life is tough and, and things go up and down. But Labour were the, were the huge winners, 22% in their favour change. And the Liberal Democrats did quite well as well, Britain's third party. So the mm. Conservatives, they're, they're in second place, but they, they really they, they lost nearly half of their seats. Mm. So if it was not Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, instead it was Prime Minister Samir Puri, if you were in his shoes, <laughs> what would your next course of action be? What matters the most right now? Honestly, Elliot, I would probably just enjoy the last couple of years I have in office and probably expect to lose the next election. But that's probably why I'm not doing his job, nor am I a member of the Conservative Party. But I do think there is, there's not so much that he can do to, I think, change perception, because don't forget, he was also Chancellor of the Exchequer under Boris Johnson. And much like if you remember back in the 90s and 2000s, Gordon Brown was kind Mm. of collectively responsible for Tony Blair, because he had been his Chancellor before becoming Prime Minister. I think there's also the the record of the party in general. But nonetheless, you know, the coronation was a very, you know, positive step for the British elite and establishment, of course, Conservative Party, they're out in force. So I think some of this is just, you know, it's, it's party politics where you do have a changing of the guard. And I think that feeling of that changing yeah. of the guard is, become, is coming quite imminent now in politics in the UK. So just to expand on that a bit, ahead of the next general elections, uh, is the writing on the wall? Hello, Labour. It's time for you to take over. Almost certainly. I think just a quick note on Keir Starmer, just as a, you know, mm. as a UK voter myself, albeit in absentia, He's, I think, grown into the role rather better than he, than he sort of looked when he first took it. His shadow cabinet in waiting, they're a little bit stronger as well. So I think there's a bit more of a sense of some degree of momentum, some degree of, uh, you know, coherence and strength in in what Labour is offering. But, you know, still a year, year and a half is a long time in politics, a week is a long time in politics, let alone a year. 
so we shall see, you know, what other twists and turns there are in store for, for the UK that might sway voters one way or the other. Speaking of twists and turns, Russia is now saying that Ukraine has launched a series of drone attacks on its territory in recent weeks. What do we know so far? And when you consider drones, they, they come in all sorts, right? All forms, balloons yeah. even. So why is Russia making so much noise? That's right. I mean, drones are everything from what looks like a sort of a souped-up model aeroplane all the way to what is effectively a long-range sort of guided missile. So there's, when someone says drones, you're quite right. You, you know, what are you talking about? But we are sort of you know, waking up to headlines every now and again where another piece of Russian territory, whether in Crimea and then the Kremlin, have actually been attacked. It's very hard for us to verify what's happening other than the fact that we know Ukraine possesses a big arsenal of drones and different types of drones. And even before this invasion, a year and a half ago, Mm. it actually entered into a deal with the Turkish government to buy drones from them and for them to manufacture more drones on Ukrainian soil. So put it this way, uh, the drone salesmen of the world are doing well uh, with Ukraine because they they obviously have seen that this is... And this, by the way, is one of the first drone-heavy wars we've seen just Mm. because of the progression of technology. Yeah, if, God forbid, we do see more armed conflicts between countries in the years to come, we can expect to see drones playing similar, almost certainly greater roles than they've been playing in the last year and a half or so in Ukraine Russia. Dr. Samir, you wrote the book Russia's Road to War with Ukraine when you were writing this. A bit of a personal question. Did you see this, you know, that it was going to come to this, a, a drone war? I mean, we've seen a lot of sci-fi TV and, and we've seen some news that indicates that even pilots are going to be a thing of the past because drones are going to take over the skies. Well, let's not even get into the biochemical stuff. Mm. Um where are we going next with this? I mean, uh, Russia won X amount of battles, Ukraine won X amount of battles. What is next for this conflict? Yeah, you know, when I was writing it, the, the military precedent was just very quickly this war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Mm. Over Nagorno-Karabakh, there was a, some fighting that they engaged in in 2019, and drones played a big role there, Turkish manufacturing ones. So I think there was a sense that they would play a big role because the same drones were available in Russia, Ukraine. But, but when I was writing the book, I mean, I honestly, it's a very depressing book to write. I really wish I hadn't ever had to have written it. But having you know, lived and worked in Ukraine in the past in Russia's first invasion, my, my real sense was is no matter what I thought about the moralities of one side or the other and Ukraine being so badly wronged, I never felt this would end in anything other than some kind of horrible, drawn-out stalemate. And, you know, that is what seems to be, uh, head, it to be headed towards now, albeit one way Ukraine has kept at least about 80% of its territory, which is, which is an amazing outcome. Given those first few weeks last year of the invasion, you know, it could have been all over for Ukraine. They could have been, you know, their capital could have been captured yeah. within the first week or two. Yeah, I, I know, uh, Dr. Samir, in our conversations, I refer to a lot of sci-fi TV a lot, but I feel some of it does kind of give an indication of potential future events. Take, for example, there was one TV series I saw where the world spoke Mandarin. The, the Chinese oh. have become the number one economy. We see that sort of happening. And now we've got the potential of China being mediator to this Russia-Ukraine yeah. conflict. This is going to be your next book, perhaps. Wow. I mean, that depends on where the world goes and how quickly it turns. But I think it's, it's without a doubt China will have a bigger role in things other non-Western countries haven't had a role in the past. Mm. One of those being mediating between major armed conflicts involving you know, things happening on the other side of the world. But very quickly on your comment about sci-fi, that's actually, there is a serious point to that. I, I read a great book called Wired for War by a, a different author, Peter Singer, years ago. He said that in America, the defense industry, they watch those Hollywood sci-fi movies and the Pentagon and the defense industry talk to each other. Can we have the thing we just saw 
in you know this latest Tom Cruise film. Yeah. And it actually come, comes back as a reverse loop from the imagination of Hollywood yes. to Pentagon to the defense industry. So sci-fi is very important for pushing innovation, I think. I think it'd be nice if we could push forward uh, a little bit and get into that Star Trek phase where money doesn't matter and it's all about the betterment of man, uh, if you're a Trekkie yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not, I'm not a Trekkie, but I tell you, I have watched enough in my yep. in my time, and, and they, they they do say what could unite the nations of the exactly. world? You know, a, a alien discovery. Well, yep. But if that ever happens, we'll see. Uh, well, we'll have a separate conversation on that, Dr. Samir. But for now, let's turn our attention to Italy. That's uh, signaled that it intends to pull out a controversial investment pact with China uh, before the end of the year. How did Italy become part of this pact? I believe they are the only G7 country in the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, so Italy's economy is probably one of the weaker of the yeah. G7. That, that, that's an obvious point. Yeah. But I think, you know, even as recently as five, six years ago, the sort of the hostile rhetoric against China in Europe within the G7 was not at the level it's at now. We all know that. We were following the news. And I think China pursued a bit of a pick and divide policy with European countries, southern and eastern European countries in particular, where their economies would have considered the Belt and Road initiative to, to be really attractive. I guess a previous Italian government was was sort of attracted by this, but I think Italy ultimately is pulling ranks with uh, you know its its American and, and other Western European friends and G7 friends, uh, and actually choosing and, and for probably reasons that other European country Western European countries are saying we're actually not going to take part in this with China because there are aspects of Chinese foreign policy, domestic policy that we, we don't agree with so 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 much. Yeah, I often say that uh, you want to understand politics, understand the uh, fights in the school backyard because uh, the bigger kid always gets more support. Yes, that's right. And, and you can imagine two big kids and then they get lots of smaller kids, you know, ringing around them. And I, I just wish the world wasn't that immature, but sadly, power dynamics and the global stage end up being like that. Yeah, indeed. Well, I've been speaking with Dr. Samir Puri, visiting lecturer in war studies at King's College London. He's also author of the book Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. Uh, Dr. Samir, I understand uh, you're busy next Friday. You are going to be speaking at uh, the ACM, uh, the topic being uh, Friday with Friends, Asia and the Western World Passing the Torch. What can we expect in this? Yeah, thanks very much for mentioning that. So it's open to all. Anyone in town you know, can come to the Asia Civilizations Museum. No ticket required, 7 p.m. Uh, the talk is actually about some of the things we're, we're discussing now, which is what the world is going to look and feel like as it becomes less Western-dominated. I think that's something we're all living through. But because we've not lived through it before, just you know, just imagine how we would need to orient ourselves to a world of, frankly, greater diversity. And I am looking at it more optimistically, not from World War Three or a great confrontation between America and China, but what it means for the rest of us in medium-sized and small countries, whether Britain or Singapore, are kind of caught in the middle of all of this. And I want to look at not the military geopolitics stuff, but some of the social, some of the more general uh, sides of, of the modern Western world becoming much more dominant. Wow, that sounds really interesting. I might take you up and uh, I'll, I'll see you at this uh, talk that you're having. Uh, once again, it is next Friday, 7 p.m. at the Asian Civilizations Museum. Dr. Samia Puri, visiting lecturer in war studies at King's College London and author of the book Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. Thank you so much for your time today. Take care and have a great Thursday evening. Yeah, you too. Great to speak as always. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.